All right, today we're in Genesis chapter 24. There we go. So we're, we're skipping parts of Genesis. Just mainly want us to focus on God, particularly what God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant. Hopefully you'll recognize he is a covenant-keeping God. So what's going on? Well, three years after Abraham's wife Sarah died, we, we come to chapter 24 now, and Abraham decided it's time for his son Isaac to have a wife. Now, Isaac, remember last time we left Isaac, Isaac was, I don't know, around, say, 20 years old, back in chapter 22. But now he is approximately 40 years old and still not married. <laughs> still not married. And so Genesis 24 gives us the beautiful and an instructive account of how Rebekah became Isaac's wife. So what is chapter 24 about? Some people think it's only a romance story. It's a story of true love and falling in love at first sight and all this kind of stuff. Is that what Genesis 24 is all about? Well, if that's all you think it's about, you've missed God. Of course, that's not what it's all about. It's, it's about God's promise and His covenant, this, this program for the nations. And what we have yet again is a speed bump, a blockage, a, 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 an apparent conflict or barrier in God's covenant. So you see, Yahweh intends to bring His kingdom into this world through Abraham's seed. Isn't that what he said back in chapter 12? The Abrahamic covenant was that God would bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham and through, through his line. And so finally, Abraham got that seed. Isaac is born through Abraham's wife Sarah. But the problem is the seed now needs seed to carry on the line, right? Isaac needs to have a wife so that he can have some children. And so the seed is not going to get that seed until he does get married. So what does the text teach us? Well, here's the, my main idea from Genesis 24 today. Hopefully, if you get nothing else today, notice that God is faithful. And because God is faithful, here's the theme. Believers can trust God to give them guidance and success as they obey Him. As they obey Him. Now we're going to learn three lessons, particularly about God today and how that relates to us. And here's the first one, my friends. The text of Genesis 24 teaches us that God's promises require faithful activity. God's promises require faithful activity. Now this is a long chapter. I think it's, what, 67 verses long? So I'm going to break it up into these three lessons as we go through the chapter, all right? So let's look at verses 1 through 9 to start with. Genesis 21 or 24, verse 1, sorry. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, 
that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now this is a big passage we're looking at today, so we're just kind of kind of going to give you some summary thoughts from the text. But notice first of all here, as we think about this truth that God's promises require faithful activity, what's going on? Well, Abraham gave his servant two non-negotiable requirements. Number one, he must not take a wife for Isaac from the people of that land of, of Canaan, the Canaanites. Notice verse 3 mentions that. Verse 6 mentions that he must not take Isaac back to Abraham's former homeland. Now verse 7 there sums up Abraham's faith in the matter. Abraham has not forgotten God's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. See, the land promise, uh, well, the Abrahamic covenant had many parts, but in the, the land covenant aspect of it, it meant that Abraham's seed was to stay in the land, that promised land of Canaan. But a wretched marriage would sabotage the covenant. Abraham's thinking this in his mind. And that's why no Canaanite girls were allowed. It's not that Abraham's relatives were all that necessarily awesome, shall we say. Uh, it's not that Abraham's relatives were necessarily faithful Yahweh worshipers, but uh, if, if you read what's going on in the text, they, they seem to practice some sort of a light paganism, uh, at least compared to the gross paganism of the Canaanites. Because if you remember, if you read on in the book of Genesis, uh, maybe you remember Jacob's, uh, Jacob's wife tries to take one of the idols with her. So they're, they're, they seem to be, Laban seems to be, uh, at least in his family, practicing a light paganism. But verses 1 through 9 recognize that marriage is essential for covenant continuity, obviously. I mean, how can, how can Abraham have children and then have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and go all the way to Jesus? They also seem to recognize that a wrong marriage can destroy covenant fidelity. See, marriage matters in the covenant. How is God going to fulfill His covenant? Well, God's promises require faithful activity. God's going to accomplish His purposes through, through these human means. And so in, instead, holy marriages are actually essential for this ongoing covenant fidelity here. 
See, look what God told Israel. Put a verse on the screen here for you. Look what God told Israel, actually, before they entered into the promised land. This is hundreds of years later. And uh, Moses says this to, to the, the Israelis. He says, uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, that is, the Canaanites, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. God's concerned about the, the, the worship of him alone there, and that's why he cares about this intermarriage. Now this carry, carries on into the New Testament, by the way. God cares about the, the covenant relationship and, be, and being, there being fidelity in that covenant relationship. For example, marriage, uh, God makes hopefully quite clear to you, makes it quite clear that it should only be to another believer. So if you're a believer... You should only marry a believer. Christians marry Christians. This was the Apostle Paul's concern for Christian widows in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at this. Uh, Paul says, uh, if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, only another Christian. Uh, so you, there's other verses you could look at in Scripture, but you get the point? Christians should only marry Christians. Otherwise, you have an unequaling yoke together with an unbeliever. Well, there's a second lesson we can learn from Genesis 24. It's that God's providence maintains God's purposes. God's providence maintains God's purposes. You say, well, what, what is providence? Well, here's one way of thinking of it. That providence is the means by which God directs all things. God's the one in charge. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who reigns supreme over His creation. But how is He working all of that out? God's working in both inanimate as well as the animate things. In other words, things that are seen, things that are unseen, uh, things that are good, even things that are evil are still under His sovereignty. And he's working all of that toward a purpose, a worthy purpose. And so all of that is God's, God's ultimate decree is going to prevail. So providence is just God's means of working everything out in his creation. And so God's providence is maintaining his purposes. Ultimately, it's for his glory and your good. But uh, look what happens here, starting in verse 10. Now, this is a large section, so uh, bear with the story, starting in verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this shall I, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Hmm. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. Behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. 
My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from the clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Look at verse 42. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water, Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the, the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Verse 52. Then Abraham's servant heard their words. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah 
and went his way. That ends that section. So hopefully you can see God's providence working throughout the, the, these, this amazing event here. And what's God doing? He's accomplishing His purposes through just ordinary means. Well, it's a big narrative, so we've we got to summarize what's going on here, lest we miss the point. But did you notice at the beginning, around verses 10 and 11 there, that uh, all of a sudden you go from the land of Canaan all the way over to Mesopotamia, which was approximately, uh, well, it was a little over 500 kilometers long, traveling in, in, a, in a caravan using camels, Probably took them maybe roughly two months to get there, but the but did you notice the uh, the, the the text doesn't talk about the long journey? It just they're they're there and then they're there they are. <laughs> if you look at verse ten, uh, just just mentions here all of a sudden Abraham's servants there. Often the Bible spares you the the details of these long trips because. That's not the main focus, shouldn't be the main focus. Uh, of course, the, the main drama here is on God's providence and how He's accomplishing His purposes. But one matter we must note is that sometimes minor characters, minor people, if you will, often play a major role in God's providence. Did you notice the servant isn't even named in the text? God doesn't even mention his name. In chapter 24, he's a minor character, but yet he's a major player in God's providence here as God's accomplishing his purposes. So how good God is to give Abraham such a faithful, godly servant. What a blessing. How much rests on this one man? But that is often the case in God's dramas. God uses ordinary, no-name people to accomplish His good work. And that's good news for us, because in the large scheme of things, we're really no-name people too. None of us could be called all-stars, probably. But God is not dependent on all-stars to accomplish His purposes. I thank God for that. But we must notice the interesting development of God's providence here. See, the servant's recipe seems to be mixing in some circumstances with prayer to God, and then we'll we'll see what you know what happens in the end. And in his prayer, the servant had proposed a test for this particular girl that she would give him a drink of water and then well, that wasn't necessarily unusual, by the way. It was, it was, by the way, quite customary for you to be a gracious host if you saw a visitor in your land to give them some needed water. But what was not normal was then to go way beyond the call of duty and then offer to water the camels, too. That was not normal. But that's what the test was. So, she's to give the servant water and also water all the camels. That's a massive test. And Rebecca seems to fulfill the servant's test, if you read verses 8 through 20, 
Now, why that particular test? Of all the things that God could have done here to accomplish this purpose, why that one? Well, it does several things. Number one, it, it, it reveals the character of the woman. The woman is showing great character by watering the camels. You say, why? Well, if you're a city slicker, you might miss the, uh, the, the significance here. Because most of us don't have camels and don't know much about camels. So let me tell you what very little I know about camels. Did you know a camel, after a long journey like this, would require at least 100 liters of water? They drink a lot of water. <laughs> and that's, that's how they can go long distances, through deserts, for example. So they, they, they need... Each of the ten camels needed approximately 100 liters of water. And how is she going to do that? She had a jar to give. And, and the camels, aren't they weren't able to drink without the water being taken to them. So that's a lot of work. Right? That's the point. They needed to be replenished. They've been on this long journey. And... Uh, if you if you kind of work out the statistics, it takes approximately 10 minutes uh, for a camel to drink that amount of water. So a, a normal water jar at that particular time period, my understanding is, would, would carry approximately 12 liters of water. So if you have, if, if you work that out, since the servant had 10 camels, and then each camel's drinking about 100 liters of water, then Rebecca had to do a lot of work. She's carrying this from the stream, I, I guess, sounds like, doing all that work. But then the good news is, on top of all that, besides the fact that the Bible says she's beautiful and she's never had sexual relationships with a man, verse 24 says she's from the right family. Oh, praise God. That's what verse 24 tells us. And so, when Laban, of course, hears the, the servant's account, he noticed, did you notice what he acknowledged in verse 50? He acknowledged that this is Yahweh's doing. <laughs> Even though he's a light pagan, at least he gets that right. Well, this sort of providence is not merely back there in Bible times. right? Sometimes, sometimes you might be guilty of reading a text like Genesis 24 and say, well, man, that happened you know, a long, long time ago, and that has nothing to do with me. Oh, my friends, don't miss who God is. Don't miss the faithful covenant-keeping God here. He hasn't changed. And so the fact is, Christian history is full of God's providence. And If you think about it, some have said that history is His story. History is His story, and that's true. And so if, if your eyes are open... You're going to run into God's providence over and over and over again. And sometimes what you'll see is a, a really long chain. You know what a chain is, right? There's all these little like loops that are connected together. And that's what you're going to see through history is this long chain of providence if your eyes are open. Let me give you just a one of many church history stories that gets this point across, hopefully. The example that I read about comes from Faith Cook's biography on the on the Saffir family. Uh, the name of the book is called Singing in the Fire. Any of you read that? Singing in the Fire? Back in 1838, 
the Church of Scotland sent a delegation on a fact-finding trip to the Middle East. And what they were trying to do is they were scouting out the area, looking for evangelistic opportunities, particularly among the Jews. And, and they also went up into Europe. They were looking for evangelistic opportunities, particularly among the Jews. And one of the men, named Dr. Keith, one day he became very sleepy, as uh, I can imagine it would be very easy to do. You're riding on a camel. He's going along through the Sinai Desert, and he falls off his camel. Those of you who have fallen off horses might relate to this. Uh, he was injured, falling off the camel. The injury proved far more serious than at first, and so uh, one of Dr. Keith's um, colleagues, Dr. Black, decided they, they would go together, go back home to Scotland. And on their way home, they decided, as they were going up the Danube River into Europe there, they decided they would uh, have a little rest along the way in the country of Hungary. Uh, but they were detained because both of them became ill, and they actually... Uh, contracted the Danube fever. But they were, as they were detained there, Dr. Keith uh, one day actually clapped and, and, and went into a, a, a coma for six weeks. Dr. Black waited helplessly for his friend to recover. But eventually the archduchess, who apparently had come to faith in Christ, aided these men in their illness and asked them to return one day to work among her people there in the country of Hungary, in Europe. And they eventually did return to Hungary in the year 1841. Ministry was difficult in a Roman Catholic country, but there were some English men working in that their particular city, and, and they held services, church services, for the English workers there. Well, some Jews began attending these church services among them were uh, two Israelis by, by the name of Israel Safir and his son Adolf. Mr. Safir was the most learned Jew in Hungary and was a highly respected man. At first he attended apparently just to uh, learn better English. Uh, nobody ever does that, right, Jerry? No, we wouldn't do that. But anyway, that's what they were doing. They're learning better English as they go to the church service. And so... Eventually, father and son did come to believe in Jesus Christ. Their salvation became known one day when Adolf was actually giving thanks for the meal one day. He was praying, and he actually closed his prayer. Now imagine a Jew saying this. He closed his prayer by saying, In the name of Jesus. Now in one sense, that doesn't seem a very remarkable story, does it? But in another, it's a most remarkable story. See, what's God doing? We, we see this over and over in the Bible, throughout church history. God's using a chain of providential events to accomplish His purposes. So, if you were to ask Adolf Sefer, how did you come to faith in Christ? What do you think he would have said? Well, I don't know what he said, but if you go back to the beginning of the story, you could say something like, well... Hey, Adolf, how did, how, did this, how did you come to faith in Christ? Well, you see, my friends, it all started when a Scotsman fell off a camel. Really? What does that have to do with his salvation? His eternal salvation. 
Do you see, my friends, how God's providence works out His purposes? And it can be something as simple as falling off a camel. (laughs) In this case, watering camels, right? God's fascinating. If you just have your eyes open, you'll see God's providence working in so many ways. Aren't His ways delightful? Yes, open your eyes. They're delightful. But you know what? Hopefully, we're not short-circuited as we look at God's fascinating ways and how delightful He is. See, we must not simply ask ourselves uh, you know, questions like, Oh, aren't God's ways delightful? <laughs> Isn't God fascinating? <laughs> no, that's not enough. See, you've got to follow the lead of Abraham's servant here. What does he do? He, he, he gets lost in the wonder of who God is and what God is doing. See, if you look at, uh, for example, look at verse 26. Let, let me just show you what the servant's doing. Look at verse 26. Uh, the servant says, uh, uh, well, it says, the man bowed his head and he worshipped Yahweh. And then verse 27, it, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the, mas- the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. D- do you see what he's doing here? He's lost in the wonder and the love and the and the awesomeness of God. Who He is and what He's doing. So what does He do? Well, basically, He worships Yahweh. And isn't that the only response that you can give to this kind of a God? This, this kind of God who, who shows us later He's really been silent all the way through the story. He's been silent all this time. He's, he is working... But it's, it's not like blatantly obvious. He's working through the people and the times and even the reactions of people and through all these circumstances accomplishing His purposes. And that's a lesson that we can learn from this text. The third lesson that we can learn from this text is that God's provision satisfies His servants. Look at number three. God's provision satisfies His servants. Always. Always. This is good news. Look at verse 26. Sorry. Other way around. Verse 62. Verse 62 says, Now Isaac had returned from Birloi Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to to, to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we are. Again, doesn't tell you this really long journey of approximately two months and over 500 kilometers of walking and riding camels and everything else that would have happened on the journey. So here they are, back in the promised land, the land of Canaan. In verse 67, it wraps it all up. So what's at stake here in Isaac getting a wife? That's what we see happening, right? Isaac gets his wife so that the 
Abrahamic covenant can continue on. Otherwise, if Isaac doesn't get a wife, do you understand the significance, my friends? If Isaac doesn't get a wife and they don't have children, there's no Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come. That's how significant this, this is. Because Jesus is in the line of Abraham. You can read Matthew chapter 1. And did you hear the last line of verse 67 here? This is so significant. See, the Abrahamic covenant would be absolutely destroyed. It would end and God would show himself to be unfaithful. But what, what does the text actually show us? It says that Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. See, God's not just concerned about the covenant here. He's also concerned about the individuals who are related to the covenant. See, God's provision satisfies his servants. And so, he's hurting. And so Isaac is not just some mere part in God's plan for the world. He is a hurting individual. He is a person whom God actually cares for. And, and, and you can see there at the end of the chapter why he's hurting. He misses his mother. His mother died in the previous chapter. They must have had a close relationship, even though he's like 40 years old now. And so he aches because of her death and, and absence. And do you think God cares? Yeah, he cares. What does God do? He gives Isaac someone to love. He gives Isaac a wife, and her name's Rebekah. And here's someone to love him back. And so what does Yahweh do? Yahweh stoops down to fill the hole in Isaac's life. So my friend, Yahweh is the God of the big plan. He's the God of the individual need. Don't lose sight of the big picture here, but, but also, my friends, He knows your individual needs too. And so when you are among the covenant people of God, you're not lost in a crowd. God knows you individually, and He cares for you individually. So when you're among the people of God, you are loved, you are cared for. And so Yahweh always sees your needs. He's going to provide for what you need. And so you might be one of those people, you just love romantic stories that have happy endings. That's okay if you do. But don't lose sight of what's really going on here. See, the question comes down to this, my friends. Are you trusting God to give you guidance and success? What are you trusting in? See, God is faithful. He's a covenant-keeping God who is worthy of our worship and our obedience. And so trust Him. Trust Him to guide you and to give you success. My friends, I've related this episode as Genesis is presenting it, drawing out some lessons for our lives, but... Let's not, let's not miss something else that's going on here. Because in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says the Bible is about Him. It's about Him. It's pointing to Him. Not everything in it is, is about Him in particular. But it points to Him, including the book of Genesis. So the episode pictures how Christians become part of the bride of Christ. <laughs> See, Rebecca is often called a type of the church. In fact, one commentator said this, quote, She was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not know of the existence 
of her bridegroom. (laughs) My friends, according to Ephesians chapter 1, that's the way it is for all believers in Christ. That's the way it is for a Christian. Ephesians 1 says, you are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Isaac passed through his experience of sacrifice in chapter 22, and and there's a there's a type of, of Christ even there with Isaac and, and this resurrection before Rebekah actually knew him. And the faithful servant left home to find her when she was still ignorant of Isaac's existence. And so when the servant found her, he initiated his contact and then induced her to come with him, not for himself. Why did he do all that? He did it for his absent master. And so the Holy Spirit, what does He do? Do you see the connection? The Holy Spirit sought us. Sought, seek, seeks out God's people and draws God's people to Jesus. And so as you travel through this life, my friends, the Holy Spirit prepares you for what you haven't seen yet, what you don't know in full yet. See, one day the Bible says that all believers in Christ will see Jesus face to face much as the servant of Abraham undoubtedly used this return trip. You know, there was a long journey of, say, two months. What's he doing? Hopefully he's preparing Rebekah to love and to live with his master Isaac. God does the same. The Holy Spirit's doing the same. Hopefully the Holy Spirit is preparing you, if you allow him to, preparing you to live with your master to love your master. And so, my friends, if the Holy Spirit's wooing you, may your response be just as quick, just as positive as that of this girl here in this story. May you respond as Rebecca did. Just start out on the journey. You're, you're on a journey to heaven. You are on your way to the celestial city. Someday you're going to get there. And at the end of life's journey, you're going to meet Jesus face to face. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. It's a beautiful relationship. Are you ready? Ready to meet King Jesus? Ready to meet the groom? May God enable us to be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the book of Genesis. May we believe that it is real events real history, real people. May we see how you're accomplishing your covenant and keeping your covenant, being faithful all along the way. Often you're doing this through just ordinary means. Your providence as you you reign supreme over all parts of your creation. May we see you as a God who is in charge. You're you're ruling and reigning. Uh, There's no accidents happening here. And so we're thankful that you are in charge and that you are sovereign and you are faithful and we can trust you because of this. So may we obey, may we worship you, uh, may we see how you're, you're accomplishing your purposes. May we be encouraged and comforted as we look at these kind of passages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.